and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life now. Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson, excited to have you with us for another great episode. But before we get to today's guest, I wanted to let you know about a few things that I've been up to. First, we recently launched a new company called Strong Skills, which is a coaching and training company that believes mindset, introspection, communication, resilience, teamwork, empathy, things often referred to as soft skills are actually at the very core of successful leadership and performance. In our mind, there is nothing soft about these skills or their impact on individuals, teams, and organizations. In fact, these are actually our strong skills. I'm super excited for what we are doing and the team we have assembled. If you're interested in learning more about what we're up to, head over to strongskills.co. That's strongskills.co. On that website, you'll also see a tab about my new book, Shift Your Mind, which breaks down nine mental shifts to help you thrive in preparation and performance. It took me about three years to write the book, and I'm extremely excited to share it with you. If you're interested in pre-ordering the book, you can do so by going over to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and IndieBound. You can also see those tabs on our website. Lastly, if you're interested in buying a bulk order for your team or for your family or for your organization or your book club, and you want to buy over 20 copies, we've created a special offer that includes a shout out on this podcast, an hour long Zoom call with yours truly to discuss the book and a mention on social media. We hope the book can help you and your people thrive, and we're so excited to share it with all of you. Now to today's guest. Andrew Hawkins, who goes by Hawk, is a former NFL wide receiver. He's a sports executive. He's won Emmy Awards. He's won Oscars. This guy is super talented, and he's much more than just a football player. He he stands for what's right and what he has conviction in, but he's also a lifelong learner. He's super curious. He's a former NFL team captain. He graduated with a 4.0 from Columbia University, and he's become synonymous with creating cultural content and digital media that goes well beyond the playing field. After a time from the NFL, he began his media career with ESPN. And once again, he was a two times Emmy award nominated host of SportsCenter on Snapchat. He's super interested and thoughtful when it comes to technology. And he's just really, really bright in that space. Uh, Behind the camera, he also is currently an on-air talent for the NFL Network and uninterrupted. He's written and produced award-winning comedy sketches and was the executive producer of Hair Love, which won the 2020 Academy Award for Best Animated Short. For the past three years, he's simultaneously served as the director of business development for the media marketing companies of LeBron James and Maverick Carter. So Hawk is somebody who you're going to love learning from. This guy is just on it when it comes to mindset. His journey is fascinating. You're going to love to learn about his grit and determination and willingness to make his dreams come true. And I honestly think while his NFL journey and career is inspiring and is incredible, I think the next chapter in Hawk's life and his career is going to be it's going to be better. I'm not even going to say it's going to be just as good. I think he's just getting started. I know he's just getting started. So I'm excited to share him with you. So without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you, Andrew Hawk Hawkins. 
Andrew or Hawk, I don't know which you prefer, but uh, it seems like a lot of what you put out there uh, to the world is is in relation to Hawk, but I'm going to call you Andrew because we just met and I feel like that's the appropriate thing to do. We got connected by Jordan, Jordan Steffi, who I know you've known for a long time. You know, I've really gotten to know Jordan in the past five to 10 years. And uh, he's just an amazing human that's really trying to make a difference in this world. And uh, it's one of the best leaders that I've been around. And I loved having him on the podcast. And we were chatting recently and he said, hey, do you think you'd want to connect with Andrew Hawkins? And uh, I was familiar with you. Um, and obviously from a football standpoint, but for me, at least the interest is so much further than that. I think you're fascinating and you're someone that I've been thinking that I'd love to connect with. So, um, the stars aligned and and here we are. And, you know, where I'd love to start with you is to get a sense of your upbringing. I know your brother played in the NFL. Um, and so I'm sure that had an impact on you, but give me an idea what life was like for you as a kid, uh, growing up in Pennsylvania and, and just Give me some ideas of what your upbringing was like. Yeah, no, for sure. First off, man, thank you for having me. This is awesome. I'm excited about having a, a really cool conversation. Um, but yeah, grew up in Pennsylvania, Johnstown, Pennsylvania, which is about 60 miles outside of Pittsburgh. Um, very central Pennsylvania, you know, small town, less than 20,000 people, you know, where football was a way of life. And you talked about my older brother. He, he played 10 years in the NFL. He's 10 years older than me. Um, and we grew up with, you know, very, you know, uh, not a lot of access, not a lot of resources. You know, I believe we had 12 people living in a three bedroom home at one point. Um, you know, so I think just coming from a blue collar town and that wasn't the norm, you know, where, where I'm from in Johnstown is one of the poorest cities in America, you know, so we didn't have much, but nobody had much. Um, and I think what that helped me become was creative you know, it, it, I always thought that I would be able to achieve because I had parents and grandparents who told me that I could. They told me that I was, you know, more talented than my current set of circumstances. And, you know, they taught me to break down barriers. And that's just something I stuck with, you know, I mean, being the younger brother of a superstar, which is what my brother was in my town. And, you know, he got it a very different way than I did. You know, I'm five, seven. And so I was told very early on what I couldn't do in life. And I think, you know, going through that young was the best thing that could happen to me is because it made me immune to what people's opinion of me was, right? I, like what anybody tells me they think is going to happen or think is capable or, you know, I, it doesn't affect. Once I've done the research, once I've put the work in, once I've studied something, it's it's as good as fact to me. Um, hey, Andrew, so up- Andrew uh, you mentioned this idea that you had others that were saying you couldn't do certain things, but yeah. then you, but then you, it sounds like mom and dad were telling you that you could do anything. Talk mm-hmm. to me about mom and dad a little bit more and grandparents and like, yeah. what, were the, what were the values that they passed down to your brother, your siblings? What were the commonalities or values that, that you witnessed or observed or, or took on for yourself? Yeah. So my, so I, uh, I have, you know, six siblings that I lived with. I have step siblings and half siblings um, because my mother remarried and I was raising my stepfather, um, you know, who, who was a, a blue collar construction worker. And, you know, he, he was a guy that got up every morning at 6 a.m. and went to work. And that's, I feel like where I learned my work ethic, you know, but again, him and my mother, they are two people that through my entire life have told me everything that I wanted to be was possible. Um, and then on the spectrum of that, pretty much everybody else outside of that took a little bit more convincing and they fell in different parts of the spectrum. Um, I had a grandfather who was a businessman and, you know, a politician and, you know, he would speak at, you know, national conventions and he knew presidents and he knew billionaires, uh, and for, again, uh, a, a black family in a very small town in the 1950s and 60s and that was not the norm. You know, so for me, I had that kind of guidance and my grandfather um, of something that I knew I wanted to aspire in business and and to try to make change and, and stand out. So of the people that I, I look to that I'm like, hey, these, these are four people that have kind of guided my life besides my siblings who were my best friends. You know, my oldest brother, who was a, him playing football is the reason why I put so much time into football. If he had been a truck driver, I probably would have been a truck driver. Um, my grandfather 
who I aspired to be like and be respected as much as he was. His name is uh, Burrell Hasserig. And then my parents, who, again, without them, I probably would have went insane through the times where I thought I was capable of doing something and everybody else telling me it wasn't possible. One common theme of a lot of people that I've interviewed on the podcast, um, when they come from underprivileged communities, they'll talk about having somebody that they could touch or see that inspired them. And as I'm listening to you talk, that ability to see your brother, I mean, when you're 15 years old, he's 25 uh, in the NFL, and then to have your grandpa also in a different lane and be able to, to notice and observe and touch that. Without those two, where do you think you would have gone? What direction? If, if you take those two people out, where do you think you go? Yeah. That's a very good question. That's a very good question. Because I think what it does, to your point of like having people that you're able to touch and access, um, it gave me confidence. And it wasn't a fake confidence. And I don't even know. I mean, it might have been an unrealistic confidence, to be honest. You know, I mean, I would be screaming from the mountaintops. I was going to play in the NFL. I was five foot six, 130 pounds. Right. Like that's almost irrational confidence. Um, but it also gave me the confidence of like there was never a room I felt like I didn't belong in. And that I feel like was a determining factor of what I'm able to do, because I, I've, I've met plenty of people and I grew up with plenty of people who were just as smart as me, just as athletic, just as, you know, um, business savvy, you know, but a lot of times it's, I, again, I go into a place and I don't feel like I don't belong. And once you can get that out of the way, you can get down to the brass tacks. You can get down to the business. You can get down to the negotiation. You can get down to, uh, the thoughtfulness and figuring out like, okay, what are we doing here? And that's something that again, has, has driven me all the way to this point. Where do you think that ability to be a chameleon or be able to fit in, in multiple environments, where does that come from? Um, you know, that's a good question. I, I, I think I had a, a, my town in general. So I grew up in a predominantly black neighborhood. Um, it's a small town, 20,000 people, probably 3000 black people. Um, but I grew up like every city in America, there is just sections of towns where our, the majority is the minority. Um, and that's the area I grew up in. You know, my mother, even though we didn't have much, she worked double times and, and to the point where there was a lot of times we didn't see her because she's, she worked 20 years in an electric company and worked double shifts, anything she could do possible. Um, she took us out of public school and into the private school because in her mind, that was a way to give us um, a better opportunity. You know, now, again, on this side of it, I can say that I don't know if, I don't know from an academic st standpoint if it would have made much of a difference, either one, and, you know, just what I know now about education and access and the things that are important in that development. But I will say what it did was, you know, again, I went to school, when I was in school, I was the only black kid. When I went home, you know, everybody was black. My baseball, you know, league was full black. There was no, you know, and so I think that juxtaposition helped me be well-rounded. Again, that also contributed to me feeling, you know, like I belong in, in every room and I, I never feel uncomfortable and I can communicate to anyone. And I understand uh, a, a lot of backgrounds and I, I have a, a lot of examples and experience of, Oh, how this person may think or where this person comes from and you know how being able to meet people on the level that they're at i think has been a benefit too it's interesting we're about the same size and i've got a son right now who's four and a half years old and he says he's going to play for the washington redskins one day he says because they need his help and uh <laughs> so which, which they do and uh he's like dad i can i can help them i'm super fast and i'll I'll help them. They need, they need more speed. And he, so he's figured this out. He said, he's either going to do that or he's going to become a blue angel and a fighter pilot. So look, I'm not one to crush his dreams, but uh, for me growing up, I wanted to be a basketball player. And the reality was like, it wasn't going to happen for me. Okay. Like there, there is a, a nature component to speed and athleticism that, that is like, I don't care how strong you get. Like no one ever went from being slow to fast. You can go from fast to faster and slow to maybe okay, but no one ever goes from slow to fast. Right. As you're growing up and you're, 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 you're undersized, you're smaller. Was the speed always there? Was the quickness always there? Did you always have an unfair advantage or what was that like for you? Yeah, I was kind of a late bloomer in, in that sense, man. I was never the fastest guy on my high school team. And I went to a small school and I was at a private school with that. So it wasn't even, you know, the, the big school. 
and still I was the third fastest guy. Um, and I remember in track, I wouldn't, I didn't do the hundred meter dash because I wasn't one of the top 10 fastest guys in the area, you know, and, it, and some of it was development. And, you know, I was able to kind of pinpoint those things. I was always very, very quick, right? You know, and uh, that was a thing that I felt like was always above average that I could ride. Um, the thing I couldn't change was my size, you know, and I actually was a big basketball fan, was my first love. Um, but there became there came a time where I felt like I had more opportunity in football, very slight advantage. So my senior year, I actually gave up basketball, which was hard to do. But I'm like, I got to gain weight. I got to get faster um, to the point of, you know, me and Jordan, you know, who connected us. We played in an all star game together. And Jordan was one of the best quarterbacks in Pennsylvania, was headed to Maryland. Um, and at the time of that all star game, which was in June, I did not have a college scholarship or anywhere to go to I actually got it late and I ended up going to a camp and rolling in a prep school and going to this camp and getting a uh, a gray shirt opportunity where I had to pay my first semester of college and then hopefully a scholarship would kick in and that's what happened but so yeah I was a late bloomer even still and I mean just kind of hoping that all these things that I was hoping for wishing for and working for would come to fruition when you talk about making an announcement, I'm going to play in the NFL and people are looking at you like, dude, you're, you're five foot, nothing, 100, nothing. You get in the Rudy treatment. Uh, yeah. Like what, what inside of you, other than the feedback you were getting from home, what about mm -hmm. your mindset would allow you to keep persevering, pushing through? And I'm also curious about, you said something earlier, like this naive confidence that you had, like I even call it inner arrogance that I think a lot of, great performers have to have this this belief in themselves that's unshakable even though the feedback they're getting from others says that they shouldn't be able to do what they're doing what did that sound like from a self-talk standpoint what did that what did that look like because there are probably 16 17 year old kids that are getting that same feedback right now but they have big dreams and maybe they can maybe they can't I don't know but what what were you saying to yourself during those high school days I think I was very self-aware, man. I, I, I never, even for the accomplishments I've had, I've never thought they would go to the level that they went to, right? I knew I could always be in the conversation. I didn't think I would be the best Division I football player, but I knew I could play Division I football. I didn't think I would be an NFL starter, but I knew I could be on a roster, right? And even at that time, I, I think my confidence comes from, and you know, I said irrational, but I do think it was a little data-driven in the sense of, Everywhere I would go, right, I would hear about what you can't do, couldn't do. And then I would go to a pit football camp where this receiver was number five receiver in the nation and he wouldn't have a catch. Right. And I'm like, that can't be normal. He couldn't have just had a bad day, you know. And then, you know, to your point, when me and Jordan played in this all-star game and these practices, here I am with all these guys who are going to these big division one schools and colleges and programs and nobody can guard me. Right. So there were little things like that that I'm like, if I can show this enough times to enough people, somebody is going to say, you know what, he may be 5'7", but even all these bigger players, he's outperforming, let's give him the chance. And I just kind of rode that all the way from there to the, to the National Football League. And playing both ways in college is, is interesting. So talk about what it's like to go to Toledo, um, to play both ways and what that experience was like for you. No, it was cool, man. It was cool because I'm always a, you know, I'm, I'm a fill the gap kind of guy. I was, again, I, I'm going to continue to say it. I was never, y'all, I'm trying to get, I was a receiver. I was never, I knew I was going to get 2,000 yards in a season. You know, um, I was the kind of person that, hey, if you need someone on kickoff team, I can tackle. If you need someone to stop the gunner from making a tackle on our returner, I can do that. And so even my senior year, I believe it was, I was playing receiver. And, you know, I wasn't getting a lot of opportunities um, because, again, our coaches favored the taller receivers and they, they verbalized that to me, you know, to so much so on third downs, they would take me out of the game, right? A receiver that they take out on third downs, somewhere that I ended up making all of my money on. Um, but it was like, hey, I went to the corner coach. I'm like, yo, I was a two-time All-State corner. If you need help, let me know. He's like, well, you come to practice tomorrow, ready to play. Cool. Came to practice the next day. He's like, yo, you are a really good corner. I'm like, thank you. And he's like, well, let's start using you. So in the games, I started playing receiver and corner. Um, on both sides of the ball. And that's pretty much how it came to fruition, man. You sound like someone who just likes to add value wherever you can go. How can I add value? Where's the opportunity? Um, talk about, let's, let's even fast forward. We'll jump around a little bit. How does that impact you um, 
in where you sit today? Like, is that something you're constantly looking for is filling the roles, adding value? What does that look like in the quote unquote real world uh, outside of the Lions? Absolutely, man. I, I think my football career has afforded me, you know, uh, that wiggle room to, to look for situations like that. I don't want to be at a place where I don't add value. That's not fulfilling to me. It's not going to be beneficial to, you know, whoever I'm doing business with or my side. So I only look for opportunities where I can add value. And my only focus in anybody that I do business with is that I leave it in a better place than when I found it. And until that is done, my job is not done. So I've been in, opportun- in, in situations where I've gotten offers to do things that are, some would say like, oh, you'd be silly to pass this up. But I'm, I am just so gung-ho focused on, like I want to make sure everyone has an experience with me that at the end of it, they say, man, that was one of the best decisions we've ever made. Um, because I think that calling card sets me up you know, for more opportunities. What's the downside of that? You do miss some opportunities or you miss you know, um, some things that public facing would say, man, you've really achieved something. Uh, but again, to my earlier point, I tried not to put as, as much credence on that uh, just because it's, it doesn't matter. You know, I mean, just you have to do things that are you're passionate about. You have to be yourself. You have to kind of play into that because that is your value proposition. And I think over time, that's something that I've used to my advantage is I'm not probably as great as people think I am. I'm just, I'm just really good at what I'm good at. And I'm good at doing things that I know I can succeed at because they're a passion point to me. There's something that I'm passionate about getting better at. And when you have things like that, that you're passionate about learning, passionate about getting better at, you don't count the amount of hours you're putting in. And naturally, you know, the, the end, the end result is, is going to be grand. You know, there's, there's something that I'm curious about, which is for me, because I was always the smallest dude and I loved basketball. Like I definitely had a chip on my shoulder. Um, maybe Napoleon complex. Some people would say, uh, like an intensity to me that I think is still inside. Like I, I've learned how to manage it, but there are times where maybe not even manage it. I've learned how to leverage it and learn how to notice and observe it when it's not serving me, but you don't strike me as like a Napoleon complex dude. Like you don't strike me as somebody who was, you know, going after the bigger guys in football or like you seem a little more laid back. Am I missing that? Am I off on that? I, th- I think I had to, I mean, you can't play in the National Football League without having that uh, switch to flip, you know, so I definitely had some of that. I did, but it was always more of, it wasn't like, I, I mean, after a while it was, I just felt like I was as better or, you know, just as good as everybody else. And it had nothing to do with my size. I, I would actually view it as a, a notch on my belt. Like I would talk trash to people that way. Like, yo, how does it feel to just get pancaked by a guy who's 5'7"? I can't even ride roller coaster rides. And <laughs> it would be them. Like, I would play into that more than they would. And, you know, it was, I don't know, it was a, a cool feeling to me. And even on this side of it, it's like, I like when people underestimate me. Not from a Napoleon complex where I'm like, I got to prove my dominance. I'm not trying to do that. I would rather sneak up on you. I'd rather you look around and say, oh, man, I had no idea that that guy had that up his sleeve. Um, yeah, that's something I use on the field. And, Still something I even use in business. But it is different because you, you probably were around guys that were your size in the NFL that did have that edge, that F you, I'm smaller, and because of that, I'm going to be a bulldog. And that's kind of what I was like as a kid. I think now I try to shift it a little bit, but it's just interesting because you got this big smile and I could see it. Like I could see you being like, ah, all right, let's roll it out. Let's see what happens. And you're yeah. almost like like smiling at them as you're, as you're torching them. Um, <laughs> We'll get to your journey to the NFL, but one of the things I'm really curious about is I heard you talk about this when you were on Paul Rabel's podcast is that you would always think about the worst possible scenario and, and prepare with the worst possible scenario in mind. And I have a book that's coming out in October, which is called shift your mind. And in the book, I talk about your mindset for preparation actually be di- being different than your mindset for performance. So um, perfectionistic in preparation and then adaptable in performance. You know, we need to analyze in, in preparation and then we need to let go of that analysis in, in, in performance and, and trust our instincts where we need to be humble in preparation and learn and then have a little inner arrogance when we're performing. 
does that resonate with you? How do you think about your mindset Monday through Saturday in the NFL and then what it was like on game day on Sunday? Absolutely. I was an absolute perfectionist. It was, you know, anxiety driven, but I was, again, I knew anybody who understands how hard opportunities um, are to come, you cherish those opportunities, you know, and they would be like gold to me. So when I got to the NFL or I would make it to any level, and you know, I'm not only trying to make everyone who blessed me with that opportunity look good for me, I don't want to lose it. I don't want them to say like, oh man, I knew we shouldn't have done this or I knew he couldn't do that. I needed my only downside to be my size when it came to the NFL. So if that meant me, you know, doing 10 extra reps than anybody else, if me, if it meant me waking up earlier than anybody else, if it meant me staying late or watching as much film, I would just go into it thinking, okay, assume everything is going to go wrong. How are you going to fix it? What is, what is your goal? What is going to be your plan then? Or if everything goes wrong, what can you affect now to raise that bar, right? If I'm going to drop three passes this week in this game, what would I have said to myself to say, I should have done this this week? Oh, catch 100 balls in the jug. That's what I'll do. If I'm going to run the wrong route on this, what can I do? I can learn this defense more. So all of those things is just how it kind of prepped my work. Um, and then the outcome was always, you know, two, threefold of what I even imagined just based on that preparation and work I put in early on. But what did you do to shift out of that on game day, right? So maybe I've got a little fear of failure on preparation. I'm not comfortable, you know, I'm, I'm making sure I'm doing everything. But then on game day, like, what are you doing to make sure you're not necessarily uncomfortable? You're not fearing failure. Instead, you're comfortable, you're fearless, and you have this sense of self because the reality is if you drop a ball, especially how you broke into the league, like, it's, it's massive. But if, you, if yeah. you are trying to be perfect on every route, you're, go you're going to drop balls. So how do you adjust? How do you adapt? How do you have the mindset you need on game day to perform to the best of your abilities? Yeah, I, I kind of would compartmentalize it as I was scared to do to fa I was scared to fail, um, but I wasn't fearful of it. And like what I tell my kid is, I'm like, it's okay to be scared. It's a natural human emotion. It's actually something that can drive you. Um, I would never let it back me down. You know, if a guy came in here that was you know six foot eight, two hundred eighty pounds, a bunch of muscle, and kicked the door down in my house. There would be some level of, man, this guy is big. It's not going to prevent me from punching him in the face. And so when I get into games, it was very much that. Like, I may have been scared, but I'm like just the kind of person that nothing is going to back me down. There is a line with my personality that I just don't cross on the opposite way, and that is through failure. And you talked about that um, chip on my shoulder. I remember playing, you know, I would be playing the Ravens. And this is the Terrell Suggs, Ray Lewis Ravens, the – you know, that defense. And again, I'm 5'7", 175 pounds. And that week I would be playing in my head and this might be on Monday Night Football. And man, this is going to go wrong with this person. And when that game would start, when I would get on the field and I would see them doing their player interests and raise out there doing his dance, the flip would switch. And it would go from fear to like, whether you like it or not, this thing is starting. And in football and in life, you can either be the hammer or you could be the nail. And so my mind would flip that if you're not the hammer, you are the nail. And that would be all I needed to where it was like, I can't wait for you to come out here, Ray. I, oh my gosh, this is going to be the worst. I would literally put that in my mind and that's how I would approach the game. And it would just completely mitigate any fear or that I had coming into it. I love that. And where I think a lot of athletes struggle is, they bring that Monday through Saturday mindset in on Sunday. And so perfectionism, people say is bad. Like, don't try to be perfect. Well, show me an elite athlete that doesn't have perfectionistic tendencies. Like you're mm -hmm. drilling, your sport is designed for you to try to master it and make it perfect. The issue becomes when they bring it to game day and now they are worried because they dropped a ball. And now they can't get over it in their head or somebody hits them across the middle or whatever. And they don't have the ability to respond and recover from it. And so right. I think there's a misconception when we tell people like, stay humble. Well, I've worked with pro athletes that stay humble on game day and they don't 
look at they look at Ray Lewis and they're like, dude, that's freaking Ray Lewis, right? And and you probably looked guys in the eye on the sideline or in the locker room, and and you could feel the ones that maybe they were bringing their Monday through Saturday training into game day. And oh, by the way, the the opposite can be true. Like you might have had guys who on Sunday they're fearless and whatever, but then they keep that fearlessness and they don't work on their craft and perfect it, and they're just like rolling with their talent. So for me, it's the combination of both those mindsets, and that's why I spent the last three years freaking writing the book to make it right right so um really cool stuff the other thing that i was fascinated by when i thought about you and we're gonna get into your journey before the nfl and then post because i think those are just as interesting if not more so than your time in the nfl was this idea of being a specialist and so how can i add value okay i'm gonna be a slot receiver my footwork's gonna be on on par and i'm gonna fill in this role and play special teams whatever you need so what are your thoughts on specialization versus generalists? And there's a book out right now called Range, which is a great book on the power of being a generalist. Um, yet we all are familiar with Anders Ericsson and 10,000 hours and deliberate practice. And so once again, you have these polarities of specialization and generalists. And of course, in sports, we're seeing kids that specialize early versus generalists. What are your thoughts on all that? I, I think it's probably somewhere in the middle. And honestly, without, you know, knowing all the scientific uh, data and, and studies around it, I think for me, it's, I do a lot, um, but it's me just kind to transferring the same honed expert skills to a bunch of different places, right? So if you think about sports, like you could, yes, you could be one very quick football player, you know, but you'll probably be a quick basketball player. You'll probably be pretty quick in track. You'll be quick in all these other things that whatever your main thing, my main thing is quickness and how it lives in different sports is just how it comes to life in that sport. And so on this side of the, of the world, I'm the same way. I do a lot of things, um, but my main thing is entertainment. My main thing is, you know, marketing. And my main thing is understanding how to leverage those things in these different spaces. Um, and so I think I'm just flexing the same muscle just in different exercises. It's interesting because I think of agility uh, or endurance as physical terms, but also mental terms. So I can have yeah. agility in what I do with my body. You said flex and I thought of flexibility and agility. We need that physically, but mental agility, the ability to uh, be flexible and to be able to handle different things is massive. Endurance I think of as like grit. Uh, can I run for a long time and just push through Ironman or marathon running. And then you've got uh, the endurance to, to stay with things in the grid. I, I think of like yogis as being very flexible and then marathon runners as having endurance. And there's kind of like a mindset to it. Yeah. As I'm hearing you talk, do you think you are also mentally quick? Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, th I think there's definitely some, uh, some parallels there. I mean, even in a, you know, I do funny content and, anyone who's been around with me. And that's like, that's also a defense mechanism of someone who's been a smaller guy being quick witted and, you know, being able to dish it out to where, man, I don't want to mess with that guy because he's going to embarrass me. You know, that that's always something. And even, you know, in the business side and being able to find solutions really quickly and think through things and see process. I see things in full, you know, I don't, I don't look at something like, Oh, this is what's happening now. It doesn't make sense to me unless I know how it got here and where I can see where it's going. Right. And, and that ability, you know, again, has been something that has put me in a really good position even post-football career. I've never thought about like physical attributes and how they might show mentally and then how you mm -hmm. can merge those two and how that can shape your identity. And it's just starting to pop in my head right now, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah, sure. For you, you've probably told this story a million times, but you go to Toledo, you don't get drafted. You to talk about you're going to do a better job than I am as far as filling in the gaps, but fill in the gaps from graduation day to uh, playing, you know, in Canada uh, and what, what transpired. Cause it's pretty wild. And you, you probably know this cause people, you probably see people's reactions when they hear your story, <laughs> but I think our listeners, and if they're not familiar would benefit from hearing how you ended up making that happen. For sure. So I played uh, at Toledo division one school, not a very big school. And I wasn't a star by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but I, you know, haven't had a brother who played in the NFL and been around the game so long and, and played with people that played at the next level. 
I felt like I had the ability to do so. So, you know, after my senior year, I made the determination myself to say, hey, I'm going to go for it. Everyone's telling me it's not possible. I think I had 222 yards my senior year uh, in football as a receiver. Um, and I'm like, I was 5'7", 163 pounds on my last day of uh, my last game. And I just thought to myself, like, you know what, I'm going to go for it. And I'm going to do it in silence, which is just typically how I move. Because, again, I don't like to hear outside opinions on things that can't change my trajectory. It's just unnecessary. So I kind of just set out on this journey, man. Um, you know, I needed an agent. And I think I created a, a fake email account um, acting like a, uh, a grad assistant coach raving about this short player who, you know, was a chance to be an undrafted free agent in the league and a shoe in the CFL and ran a four, three and none of those things were true at the time. Um, hey, Hawk, I, Hawk, let's just jump into that real quick. What do you, where's the line between lying and yeah. exaggerating truth? And what are your thoughts on like ethics and like, where, yeah. where is, where is that for you as, as you think about it today? That's a very good question. I think it's changed since then. Now, my mindset was this, right? You have to be a certain height to play in the NFL. I did not believe that to be true. I believe that to be a lie, right? So to combat a lie <laughs> that was already going, in my mind, I rationalized it as this is all in an effort to dismantle that lie that is being told. You know, I mean, I... I I had him run a 4-3. I knew I was capable of running a 4-3. That much I was very confident. Um, but the rest of it was like, hey, this is a dream. This is something. The thing about football is you can't be a high-level football player nine times out of ten without having started to devote your time, energy, and effort completely to that at age eight or nine, right? So at this point, this is my life's work. I have put an incredible amount of time in there. I think I'm a pretty smart guy, and, you know, if I can go back, I probably would have been a doctor. I probably would have been a lawyer. I probably would have been something completely different and put that energy elsewhere that would sustain my entire life. So I was just like, yo, this is what I want to do. And I'm willing to do any of these things just to get the opportunity. I'm not trying to trick anybody. I can't trick myself to the NFL, but if I can get an opportunity and show I can play, then all's well that ends well in my mind. So that was kind of my line with it. Did you, did you love football? I love what football has done for me. I loved the process of taking it from nothing to something when everyone said it wasn't possible. At that point, in my mind, I think it was more of a business decision. It was, I put an incredible amount of time, energy, effort, and if I don't get everything out of this that is possible, it would have been a bad business move. That was my mindset. I, I've been fortunate to work with a division one football team and division one basketball and a bunch of other sports. When I asked that question, do you love your sport? There are certain sports that you get that hesitation that you just gave me. And yep. it's just like a brief pause. And uh, I get that in swimming. I get that in cross country. I get that in wrestling I get that. I call them pain sports, uh, sports that physically though, all those yeah. sports require a physical rowing, like, and then some say yes. And some say maybe, and some say no. And some answer it with some more context. I typically don't get it as much with basketball. I typically don't get it as much with soccer, hockey, hockey, for some reason, I like typically don't get it with hockey, but it's interesting. The football players, um, you usually get that little hesitation on, on, on whether they love it. And I, and I, I was amazed when I work with a college football team, how many guys said, you know, I would ask them, why do you play? And they're like, for my parents, like put them in a better position and, you know, put my family in a better position. And to your point, like a lot of them would say a business decision, the basketball mm -hmm. guy who oft a lot of them come from similar backgrounds. Yeah. That might be part of it, but, a lot of those guys will say, oh, I love balling. Like, it's just what I love to do. Um, yeah. So anyway, it's just, it's something I always like to ask football players. No, that's real. Cause I, I mean, if you would have asked me even at high school level, like, wait, what do you love? I would have loved, I would have said, I love basketball. You know, I mean, football, even at that age for me was a business decision. You know, I, I, it's hard not to 
approach it as a business once Pat, like once you're past high school, you know, it was never like not a business to me. It's a business that I, I loved competing. I loved the challenges. I loved like, again, like going in against all odds and showing people like more and more like, man, we were wrong. Like that was so awesome to me. And football was an avenue that created that for me. And it's changed the economic standing of my family for multiple generations. So yeah, I love football in the sense of what it's done for me. It's not fun getting hit by Ray Lewis. You know, I was up for the challenge, but that wasn't fun. It wasn't fun getting hit by Troy Palomalu, you know? So for those kind of times, it's hard to say that you love doing that version or running until you throw up or just being sore constantly or my knees and my ankles creaking as I walk down steps. That is not anything that anyone falls in love with. So, so here you are, you're sending these fake emails as a business decision to try to get to where you want to go and get hit by yeah. all those people. And uh, what comes next for you? Like walk us through the, the journey a little bit more. Yeah. So I, I mean, I sent it to like 50 agents. One of them bit the hook. Um, the agent starting out and he's like, you know what? Yeah, let's, let's see what we can do, man. You know, I, I'm like, Hey, I'm going to train at the time I was doing an internship with uh, the Toledo sports marketing department and the athletic department with the, um, the athletic director. Um, I was finishing school and I was training. So I would be up at like five 30 breakfast, workout, go to my internship, workout, go to class, workout. So I did that for four months. Like I was going to put myself in the best shape possible and give myself a really good chance. Um, pro day comes along and I'm like, you know what? I got to measure in higher than five, six and a half, right. With no shoes on and the way they make you stand. So I went to Michael's craft store. I bought uh, two slabs of clay the day before I molded them. They were like, look like my skin color. I molded them to look like the bottom of my heel. So it was on like a, a grade and it would gave me like an inch and a half, put them in the oven or actually I didn't put them in the oven. I forgot to. And so they were soft still. So I had to tape them on my foot. Like I was taped my ankles and I left a little bit out the back. So it looked like skin. And so I'm walking on my tippy toes to my pro day and I have two, two and a half pound weights in my pocket. So my pro day, I measure at five, eight, 182 pounds. Right. And I'm like, if I can do that and then have the numbers that I know I'm going to have, maybe someone will say, we'll give this guy a chance. And I measured in and I was nervous as hell that they were going to see it. It worked. I cut them off. I went to go do the drills. I jumped to 38 vertical, 43440, you know, sub fourth second short shuttle, like amazing numbers. And I think that was the only reason. That and the fact that one of my coaches, who was the corner coach at Toledo, got a job at Cleveland, the numbers popped out and they asked him and they brought me in for a rookie mini camp. So that was how I even got my first professional look based on me doing that kind of stuff at Pro Day. And just so we're clear, as you look back on it, it doesn't sound like there's regret, but you know, 13 years later, whatever it is, you look back on it, you're like, as you navigate the world today, look, you're not as hungry as you probably were then in, in the sense of like, I'm going to do whatever it takes to get to where I want to go. Um, it, it's just, it's, it's, I, I think ethics are interesting. I think like where the line is and like, cause to your point, none of it matters if you can't catch a damn ball and do your job once you're in there, but like, what are you going to do to knock down, knock, knock down doors and get yourself in the building and, and, like everybody's got unfair advantages and in some ways some people are more privileged and are cheating in that way right like yeah. so yeah. I, I think it's just an interesting concept for us all to be thinking about like where is the line and how will we still have the determination and drive to when we are gung-ho on getting to where we want to go like are we willing to do whatever it takes yeah and it's weird because even my mindset on this side of it is just completely different you know and I think that was an adjustment for me, just transitioning in life, just because in sports and in football specifically, you can't hide, you know? So I, like, I didn't even think about any of that stuff at the time because like, to your point, it wouldn't have mattered once I got there because it's a, it, football is a place and I love it. And it's like, you don't hear of a lot of locker room issues that come out in football, like you do basketball or other places because we have an opportunity every day to figure this out. I'm going to get you on the field. If you have a problem with me, we have an hour and a half set aside every single day to see if you're as tough as you think you are, right? To see if you're as fast as you say, to see if you're as quick or as good. So in my mind, it was like, yo, if I get to that point, my play will do the talking. They won't worry about my height. After I got to the NFL and showed that 
Troy Palomalu or anybody couldn't guard me one-on-one, my height never came up ever in my career again, you know? So do you think I'm thinking about this now? One of the things that came up for me when working with a football team is I didn't realize how segregated offense and defense were like halftime offense is on one side, defense is on another. I'm like, these are two separate teams. And then you have special teams, right? Um, for you playing both sides of the ball in college, do you think that helped you uh, develop and helped you learn more nuances to the game at a higher level that you were able to uh, perform at a high level once you did get your opportunity or how do you think it impacted you? For sure. I think the information, um, just thinking, understanding how everyone thinks that's, that's good of like any industry, you know, and even to that point, I didn't play receiver till I got to college. I was a defensive back because my older brother, was a defensive back and he was giving me NFL level knowledge and insight. So I was really good at corner because I got that information early. I was just five, seven, you know? And so I think even as a receiver, that's something that helped drive me throughout my career is because I had that mindset of a defensive back and understood how they thought, understood how they diagnosed things. And it just gave me the, the keys to, to know how to beat them. And so you're a rookie mini camp in Cleveland. How did that go for you? It went great. I, I mean, you know, I, coming in and the coolest part was, again, going in places and people expecting nothing of you. You know, they would almost laugh when I would come in, right? And by the end of it, everyone was kind of raving about how good I was. I'm, you know, it was 73 rookies and there was like two open contracts. Um, but everyone was hoping that the undrafted free agents who were also there, you outperform them and you take one of their contracts. And so what happened was at the end of the camp, they thanked everybody. Um, and they said, hey, we're going to call eight people to come on this side and seven people to come on this side. The seven people that they called were getting cut, and they were basically losing their contracts. And the eight people were people they were giving those seven people's contracts to. Well, I was the eighth person. And, you know, so what happens, I, I met with the GM, the head coach, receiver coach, Paul Warfield, who was a Hall of Fame receiver. And I remember he told me, like, hey, I scouted the guy that they went in the second round. You're better than him. And all these people were telling me how good I was. They were just worried about my size. And so I thought I was going to sign with the Browns. And they're like, just be patient with us. We're going to figure this out next couple of weeks. It never happened. Um, so I didn't get signed after that. And that was like kind of devastating. Didn't get signed in CFL. You know, so from there, I went back to work, went back to school to finish my degree, was living on a friend's couch, was uh, coaching receivers at Toledo for a year, um, was working as a caddy. Um, I got an internship with the Lions, so I was a scout with them in the summer and training camp for about a month and a half in their personnel department. So I was like coming into grips with the terms that football was over, and I was starting to put my life back together of what life looked like after sport, and it was tough. It was tough. I mean, no one cared that you played at Toledo. No one cared, you know, that you used to play football, and I didn't have an, anything on my resume to point to, hey, here's how this guy could be beneficial to our business, and I applied for every internship you could imagine every sports company you can imagine. I wrote countless emails over and over again. And so I think that kind of fueled where I'm at now, that trying to figure it out and how unsuccessful I was at it for, again, things that were beyond my control. Reality TV. Uh, so it, <laughs> there's a lot of reality TV on right now as we're all stuck at home. Uh, and, <laughs> but I'm not seeing any football tryouts. And it's interesting to think about if you were, you back then right now like those doors might be shut even more so because of the nature of where we're at with sports but talk about getting on michael Irvin's show competing there i know there's a crazy story about you finding jerry jones and you know meeting jerry jones i think at the combine and like you know be like i'm gonna be on the show and all that stuff but but give us the reality tv show experience and then from there uh, just connect the dots. And then I want to make sure we have enough time to talk about outside of football, because I think we've done a good enough yeah. job covering your journey, but give us like the quick version of how you end up, you know, get into the NFL. Yeah. So I was again, working as a, a grad assistant receiver coach um, with Toledo still living on one of the players couch. And we were watching ESPN one day and we seen on pardon the interruption that Michael Irvin was starting a reality TV show to take 12 guys off the street and giving them a chance to compete for a um, free agent contract with the Cowboys. Long story short, I'm like, that sounds like it's for me. Um, I couldn't get to any of the, the live tryouts for it that they were having. They were like in like Miami and Dallas and a lot of these like hot button football places. So I sent them 30 audition tapes. 
I overnight at 10, two-day mail 10, and regular mail 10, because I wanted to make sure they got it. Um, after I had called and talked to them, they were like, it's a long shot. Made it to uh, the list of the final 50 for a tryout. My brother was getting in the media at the time. And I, you know, me and him were actually doing a podcast way back then. And he's like, hey, come to the combine. I'm going to try to make some contacts there. And I was a college coach, so I can actually get in to watch it. So I was in there watching it. He was in the media section. He couldn't see the combine. Jerry Jones walks by and I'm like, freeze up. And he walks up to his suite and I'm so mad at myself that I didn't say anything because he was getting interviewed. And so I call my brother. I'm like, man, I got I to figure out this way. So I find like a back stairwell to his suite and I sit outside of his suite door, like in this hallway, looking through a crack in the door for probably two and a half, three hours. And my brother's blowing my phone. I'm like, hey, we got to go. I had the rental car. He's like, bring the car. And it got to the point where he started threatening me. Like, if you don't come, when I see you, I'm going to kick your, you know what? So I'm like so mad at myself that I didn't, like I was going to wait for him to walk out so I can go shake his hand. I go to pick up my brother, still upset at myself that I missed the opportunity. As I pull up to the hotel, a car pulls in front of him as he's walking to the car. Jerry Jones hops out of the car. And so I run up. Like, I can't believe it. His eye, my brother's eyes light up. I run up to Jerry like, hey, man, you know, I'm going to trial for this show. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm going to win it. And, you know, your show is in, in Michael Irvin. He's like, oh, okay, I'll, I'll tell the playmaker that, you know, you talk to me. And so I flew out there literally that week for the, for the tryout. And I don't know if he ever told him. But it, when Mike came out, I told Mike, I said, hey, yo, I met Jerry Jones last week. And I told him I'm going to win this show. And Mike basically extra watched me throughout this 50-person tryout. I make it on the show. Um, I do incredible on the show where most people who watch it say, I should have won. I outperformed everybody. But again, I'm 5'7", and if you can imagine the pressure of having to send a 5'7 receiver from a reality show to America's team, they're like, hey, let's go with the big guy. So the other, you know, Jesse Holly ends up winning the show, but there it got me opportunity to go to Canada. And I mean, the show was the hardest thing I've ever done in football. And I learned a ton about special teams, having worked under Bill Bates, who was a special teams legend in the NFL. And just under, again, just putting this work in to show I'm willing to do anything. I got a Canadian Football League contract from that. Um, and so I was runner up, but I was hopeful because now I was playing professional football, and I, which is something that, again, was like, I'm like so blessed to do. I played there two years. Um, we won two championships. I was not a star player on my CFL team. I was a contributor. When they needed me, I delivered. Um, but being able to cut that tape up, send to NFL teams, I finally got tryouts after those two seasons. And I tried out with the Bengals and the Rams. And the Rams offered me a contract the same day the Bengals did, which is my first offer ever. And I ended up signing with the Rams because the Bengals at the time had Ocho Cinco, T.O. on the roster, um, Jordan Shipley, and all these like big level receivers. Well, then the lockout happens like a month later. And what that means for a player like me is that I can't go showcase my talents in a practice environment. So by the time the lockout ends, it's camp time. And they're like, you know, having to start to put this team together, you know. And so I drove to St. Louis from Pennsylvania, 13 hour drive um, for camp. I get there. We have one practice. Uh, the only thing the coach says to me is tuck my damn shirt in. <laughs> and the very next morning, I'm like, you know what, I'm going to go early. So I can start to learn these plays. I'm going to use that to my advantage. I go at, we had to be there at 8.30. I got there at 5, sat in the parking lot and was going over my plays. Uh, got out the car about 8 to go in the, the building. And there's a guy sitting there. And he's like, hey, you Andrew Hawkins? And I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, good to meet you. He's like, oh, yeah, come with me. They cut me after one practice. Um, and so I'm like, oh, dang, this is, this is like the worst case scenario. I found out my wife was pregnant uh, three months earlier. And so now I'm just in the mindset of like, okay, I have to make a living. I can't chase this NFL dream any longer. So I call my CFL coach and I tell him, hey, you know, I'm going to come back. He's like, hey, we'd love to have you. Um, and long story short, we called the Bengals back to see if the Bengals would pick me up. They wouldn't answer the phone. So I'm like, okay, that's not happening. Pack my bag, get ready for Canada. And the next day my brother calls me and he's yelling at me. Like, why didn't you tell me? And I'm like, tell you what, I told you I got cut. He's like, it says that the Bengals picked up your contract. And I'm like, what? And that's how I found out I was a Cincinnati Bengal. And yeah, that's how I got to the NFL, man. Made the practice roster and, you know, got activated a couple weeks after that and turned into a seven-year career. 
Last question on the football side. So you go there, you have success. Um, I'm sure exceed expectations from the outside looking in, but not necessarily from the inside looking in. Get a nice contract. What's it like then to not be the underdog? What's it like then to like have some security, so to speak? In the NFL, I mean, security is not the same as yeah. at Google, but what 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 was it like for you to get that second contract and um, have some security? Yeah, I never thought it was possible, man. I tried to retire after my first year in the league. My brother talked me out of it because I was like, yeah, that was awesome, wasn't it? I did it. That was really cool. Let's move on with life. And he's like, yo, you might be able to get a second contract. And I'm like, really? And so I stuck into it. And, you know, and also the obviously insurance benefits and all that kind of stuff. Um, but it was tough as a, from a mindset because I spent my entire life as the underdog. So when I got my contract from Cleveland, which again was like a, such a blessing just in life in general, um, it was a little bit of a struggle trying to fix my mind on thinking, oh, now they expect you to be good. That's just a completely different uh, area of life that I've never experienced coming from. And so the pressure and anxiety of that was very heavy on me that season. I ended up having my best season, almost a thousand yards. And, um, and then from there, they like, you know, because we signed some other people that they changed the role. But I mean, in that moment, it was like a very gratifying thing to be like, we expect you to be good. And then you delivered. And even still like, you know, Browns fans and viewed me as the Cleveland Browns because of that experience. And they were like, Oh, whenever Hawk got his opportunity, he made the most of it. And we appreciate that as an organization. It's interesting. It kind of reminds me of like the freshman going to sophomore year. When you're a freshman, you come in, there's no expectations. You just go and do your thing. Now you've done your thing. Now you're starting or now you're coming into this role. And a lot of people struggle with that transition from freshman to sophomore. And I think it's mm -hmm. the same thing in anything in life. Like, oh, no expectations. I could come in and just do my thing. And then a lot of times yep. we put that added expectation on ourselves, And that's where we get more tense and, and we, we might struggle. Yep. The, the other thing I just wanted to hit on with you is education. And so you get your master's at, you know, from Columbia. And so I'm curious for you, was there a love for marketing entertainment early? Um, the desire to go back to school and continue your education, even when you're like so focused on, on making the NFL, walk me through all of those dynamics yep. and how you thought about it. Yeah, I, I always viewed myself as a businessman since I've been a kid. And I think, again, to, to my earlier point about my grandfather, um, I positioned my mind that way. That In my mind, football was a way for me to transition into the business world. I'm like, if I can play one game in the NFL, and then if I go on a job interview with Brian Levinson and I say, he's like, hey, it's just it's neck and neck between you and another candidate. And I say, oh, I played in the NFL. If he's an NFL fan, he might say, oh, okay, well, that's pretty cool. We'll give you the job. Like, that's cool experience or stories I want to hear about. That was my mindset. So business and becoming that was always the goal for me. Um, and the experience of football being taken away after college for three years or two years, um, it reset my mind that when I got back to the NFL and got back into football, every downtime I had, every minute, every off season, I was focused on setting myself up for later because I didn't want to be back in that situation because it was traumatizing a little bit. So I knew I wanted to go back and get my master's. And I'm like, hey, it'd be better if I got my master's while I was in the NFL, because then everyone can see what I am about. They can see what my focus is. So I went back to Columbia and got my master's in sports business. Um, I would, in the off seasons, if I would find people that I wanted to connect with or wanted to learn from or shadow or intern with, and I would send them game jerseys signed with a handwritten letter saying, yo, I'm Andrew Hawkins, start receiver for the Browns or Bengals. I just want you to let you know I read your story. It's extremely inspiring. I'm trying to do this. I don't want anything but to say, hey, I appreciate you and let you know you've inspired me. And those connections that I made doing things like that have even carried me on this side of sport. I would, someone would say, hey, I'm like, hey, if you're ever open for coffee, let me know. They're like, hey, what are you doing Friday? I'm in Tampa. They're in Seattle. What are you doing Friday? Oh, I'm not doing anything. Will you, will you meet me at such and such at one? Yep. I would buy a flight. I would fly to Seattle. I would have coffee. I would get on a plane and fly right back to Tampa. And this happened. My wife will tell you I'm a maniac that way. But it was so important for me to build this network at a time when people thought it was cool to talk to me. And like people will remember how you treat them when they're on top. And I felt like every time I was on top, I would reach back and people would remember that. 
So on the times when I felt like I needed them, they would reach out to me. And that's still what happens to this day. You know, there's so many layers to that that I love. But one of the interesting pieces, there was research recently that found that pro soccer players that had interests outside of soccer and, you know, were getting their realtor's license or going and doing different things in business actually perform better inside yes. the arena. And we, we, there's this old school mindset that like you have to be singularly focused and obsessed. And what that study found was that actually those people were taking things that they were learning outside of the game. And then they were thinking the game differently once they got back into it. And the reality of sports is there's only so much you can do with your body every single day. Like you, you need to rest your body. And so I think your story is so helpful for pro athletes because um, they struggle with that. Like, am I completely focused on the sport? And to your point, there is a relevance to being a pro athlete that is an unfair advantage. And if you leverage it when it's hot, it can be so fruitful to you um, in so many different ways. So I think your story is really important for pro athletes because um, working with some of them, like, I think sometimes they don't realize that that ball is going to stop bouncing or it's, it's going to stop working and they might have enough money. That's cool, but they might not have any fulfillment or an understanding of who they are outside their game or their identity. And we so often talk about the broke athlete, but we also need to think about like that identity piece, just like our military, the identity that they have when they transition yeah. out. And so your ability and capacity to leverage that you are a Navy SEAL is really, it's sexy. It's cool. Um, it's the same thing for an athlete. And I think we all need to step into our unfair advantage. And so it's just awesome to hear your story to do that. The last thing I want to hit on is, is the hilarious videos that, that you, that you've been making during when the last dance went out. I mean, your videos were so on point and if I didn't know any better, I would think that it's a comedian, right? Like I would think, yeah this is somebody who is a comedian. There are probably people that watch those videos and didn't, don't even know anything about your background. True. Yeah. You're smiling so ear to ear right now. Like <laughs> why, why do the entertainment piece, like what's driving you and, and why is that fulfilling for you? Yeah. I think just, it's a, another part of my personality. That is a big part of my personality. Again, people who have played with me or been, you know, around me, they understand how much fun I, I like to have. And honestly, in football, this all kind of ties together. Because my only regret in football was that I didn't have as much fun as I should have because I was such a perfectionist and there was so much anxiety around performing every, and it wasn't just on game days. I didn't view it as like, Hey, you trained during the week, perform on Sunday. Every day was a game to me. Like, so when I would drop a pass in practice, it would haunt me into that next day. Like I was taking that home. I would have to sit in my driveway for an hour just to kind of decompress before I went in. I didn't want to take it to my kids. And Football was such an amazing blessing and playing at the pinnacle and my dreams coming true. I wish I had enjoyed it from my true personality, which is the fun person I am. So when I got into sports media and this side of content and entertainment, that was like my line in the sand. I'm like, I don't, I want to be personality driven and I want it to be fun. I can give insightful stuff. I can do the X and O's with the best of them, but I'm going to have fun. And that's what I love to do with the content. And to your point, the sketches is like another point of that, that I'm like, I always want to show that side of my personality. And I was always nervous to be like, oh, well, you can't do this and be a great businessman and be, the, you know, but the reality is I am. And it feeds it all together to be, to be real because my relatability to people helps me in marketing because I know what people want to be entertained by. I know what they want to see. I know how they connect to certain things. And so it, I think it's all connected. And again, being able to show that and people engage with it the way they did and the opportunities that have now come from that, I never thought was possible. And I'm so happy that I put it out that my wife and my brother convinced me to do it because I have probably 30 videos like that that are on the cutting room floor over the last five years and I have never seen the light of day. Well, it's hard to put yourself out there, especially with comedy. I, uh, I, I'm not, I don't think I'm that funny, but I've always wanted to do one stand-up comedy routine just because I think it's like, it's gotta be the, the ultimate performance where you're being judged instantly. You are, people are waiting for you to actually deliver. They're sitting there waiting for you and oh. you have to deliver it in a way that it doesn't seem rehearsed. And so Chris Rock is somebody who I've loved to study. There's an awesome documentary about him on A&E where it talks about his challenges and he really struggled on the, even, even when he was at Saturday Night Live, like 
people were like, he wasn't a good performer. It, he, yeah. he developed his ability to perform and he's fascinating to study and, and research. And I think a lot of us have those things that are on the cutting floor and uh, we're, we're afraid to put out there and these talents. Like I love to freestyle rap and like I used to do it when I had a couple drinks in me and, and there was yeah. nothing to lose in college. I can't remember the last time I freestyle rap, but I, like I actually like doing that, even yeah. if it sounds absurd. This little white kid like can freestyle rap. Um, <laughs> so at any rate, I, thanks for giving us that gift. I think it's a beautiful part of you, and I'm glad that you're finding joy because I agree. I think that for me, one of the shifts that I talk about is work and preparation and have joy in the performance and playing with joy. There was a high school basketball coach that I was around. That was the message he always gave his kids before they stepped on the floor is to play with joy today. And I think it is something that often gets lost, especially in the cutthroat nature of the sports business or, or any business like trading, uh, you know, guys on wall street or lawyers or like, we should all have joy in our life. Life's too short to not have joy. Um, Hawk, where can people find out? And I'm calling you Hawk now. So I think we made yeah. it. I think, I think we're now, we're now at Hawk. You know, when I was younger, people used to call me B-Lev. So you can call me B-Lev. Um, we'll, we'll roll with that. And, uh, but where can people find your podcast? Uh, you've got so much content out there. So I'll just let you, let people know where they can find you on social media and, and where they can listen to the podcast, whatever you want to promote. If there's something else that we didn't talk about that you're passionate about, uh, throw it out there. Yeah, no, I, I do a lot, Brian. So yeah, I do uh, Tomahawk Show is a podcast. We do a football podcast. I do Needing Dough podcast where we talk about, um, you know, how financial uh, education is important with athletes and how it relates to everybody else's lives and learning to navigate those waters um, on the NFL Network. But you can find me and all my content. The best way to do so is ad hoc on every social media platform, Twitter, Instagram, uh, YouTube, Facebook, ad hoc. I own them all, so you'll find me there. H-A-W-K, it's very easy. You know, you know he's on it from a young age when he already has Hawk locked in as handles. That's pretty impressive. I, I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson, Instagram, intentional underscore performers. And you can listen to all these conversations at intentionalperformers.com. At Hawk, my man, great to get to know you. I look forward to meeting you in person at some point. Um, and uh, shout out to Jordan again. If, if you want to learn more about Jordan's foundation, Children Deserve a Chance Foundation, also Atalo prep they do incredible work near where where hawk grew up and just shout out to jordan he's changing lives and anything that we talk about today it's it's kind of meaningless compared to what jordan does on a daily basis absolutely absolutely man thank you for having me b take care thank you for listening to intentional performers with brian levinson here is this week's episode gem i remember playing you know i would be playing the ravens and this is the Terrell Suggs, Ray Lewis Ravens, uh, you know, that defense. And again, I'm 5'7", 175 pounds. And that week I would be playing in my head and this might be on Monday Night Football. And man, this is going to go wrong with this person. And when that game would start, when I would get on the field and I would see them doing their player interests and Ray's out there doing his dance, the flip would switch. And it would go from fear to like, whether you like it or not, this thing is starting. And in football and in life, you can either be the hammer or you can be the nail. And so my mind would flip that if you're not the hammer, you are the nail. And that would be all I needed to where it was like, I can't wait for you to come out here, Ray. I, oh my gosh, this is gonna be the worst. I would literally put that in my mind and that's how I would approach the game. And it would just completely mitigate any fear or that I had coming into it. <laughs>